Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. You see that it starts off the same way that chapter 9 of Joshua starts off, and it came to pass. I heard of a man who, uh, uh, he liked, he said that's one of his favorite phrases in the Bible, especially when he gets in trouble, and it came to pass. You know, that it's going to pass by sooner or later. But um, we see that, and it came to pass uh, when Adonai Zedek, and we'll talk about him in a moment, um, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, and had done it to Jericho and its king, so he, as he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that he feared greatly because of Gibeon was a great city, and like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty, therefore Adonai, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, uh, sent to Hosham, and he mentioned these five kings. Now notice, uh, as you go back to chapter 9, we see that they had already talked about this. If you look at verse 1, before the Gibeonites had come to Joshua, said that it came to pass uh, that all the kings who were on this side, or on the west side of the Jordan, and the hills and the lowland, and in all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, uh, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, and the Jebusite heard about it, and they were afraid, and they were gathering together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So notice they were already making their, uh, their alliances, but then all of a sudden they had a great betrayal. And we saw that in verse nine, chapter nine, one of the key cities, one of the we see in chapter ten that uh, that uh, the Bible tells us that Gibeon was a great royal city, or it was a city very wealthy, and um, it was one of the most politically attuned cities. And yet now the very heart of the central highlands has gone over to the other side. And so this left Jerusalem, almost a straight path down to, uh, up to Jerusalem. Everything in uh, Palestine is up. But uh, it, it left that whole region uh, open um, for the Israelites to take over. And so this was strategic. We notice now in chapter 10 that he's going to call these men together. But first of all, Adonai, Adonai, excuse me, Adonai Zedek. Now, does that sound familiar as far as his last name is concerned? Notice that hyphen there, um, Adonai Zedek. Do you think of another man whose name ended with Zedek, and he was the king of Jerusalem, or king of Salem anyway? His name was Mel, Melchi Zedek, Zedek Melchizedek. And so this was about 500 years before that the king of Jerusalem, that was the name Melchizedek, means the Lord of righteousness, Adonai Zedek, means, excuse me, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Adonai Zedek means Lord of righteousness. And yet we know that he was one of the, uh, the kings that were, were allied against Israel, and he was one of the kings that God had condemned. His, his uh, iniquities were full now. His very name is blasphemous toward the Lord because he takes on the name of the Lord and yet he is an enemy of God. Many people look at him as even 
you know, kind of a precursor of the uh, Antichrist who will try to um, marshal the forces of uh, evil against uh, Israel. But we see that um, this king of Jerusalem, now Jerusalem is another term. Uh, it was the king of Salem. It wasn't really a city as far as a big city like we know today, uh, back then. And but, uh, Melchizedek was the king of righteousness in, uh, the, in the city of peace, Jerusalem, or Salem. But now the Jebusites took over uh, Salem, and it was a, and of course it's one of the high mountainous places, a perfect place to build a city because it's so hard to uh, to besiege and to take, and uh, and so the Jebusites uh, took over Salem and they named it Jebusalem, uh, uh, Salem, and of course that's where we get the term Jerusalem from Jebusalem, and so. Uh, we see that uh, the whole area there was much like we have in our country today, where you had a man named John Harvard and Eli Yale and other men back in the uh, late 1600s, 1700s said, we want to, uh, we want to, um, to start a school so that we don't have to send our preachers back over to England to get educated. And they started Yale and Harvard, and for years those schools turned out some pretty decent uh, preachers. Jonathan Edwards and others was, uh, were some of the great preachers that came from there. All the way up until the 1800s, Yale uh, seemed to be, and now they had their problems, but uh, it uh, still turned out some, from some pretty decent people up through the 1900s, or the, up to the last of the 1800s, and then they started going really liberal in about the 1920s. But uh, today, look at them. I mean, they've got the name, they've even got divinity schools in both of those places, but look what they're turning out. They're turning out uh, uh, people that are anti-God, anti-Christian, uh, just, just horrible stuff that is coming from those schools today. In fact, uh, we know all the scandals that are going on, and it's getting so bad that many of the major uh, donors are withdrawing their money from those schools because of just how far left-wing and... Uh, communistic and everything that they, those places have become. And yet they still want to carry the name. And here we see that 500 years later, uh, we have a man that's still carrying on the name of the Lord, and yet he is just as far from the Lord as he can be. And so that, that so many people are Christians in name only, or they're just um, they're people that uh, really live just the opposite lives of being a Christian. And so this very name, this man's very name is blasphemous. And so, but notice he's the head. He's now the big king city, uh, or the at least militarily strong city, central city. Um, the city north of there, which would have been Gibeon, would have been just, uh, uh, it was one of the allied cities that they would go and they would depend, uh, 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 it was for commerce and so forth. It was on one of the major trade routes and so forth, the east-west and then going to Jerusalem. And so these were all cities that were networked and they did business together. And for Gibeon to just sell out, as far as they were concerned, would have been a major strategic blow to the rest of the areas around there. There'd be, we talk about sanctions today and all that. Well, you know, the, the, the whole commerce of the area was going to be upheaval, uh, an, upheaval, or, or an upheaval because of uh, the very fact that what the Gibeonites had done, as we saw last week, as they had 
surrendered, actually, to uh, Joshua and to the people of Israel. And notice they feared greatly, in verse um, 2, because of Gibeon was a great city, royal city. Uh, it was greater than Ai, of course. Ai, Ai wasn't very big. And so we see that Adonai Zedek got the rest of these kings, the king of Hebron. And of course, we know that is where Bethlehem was going to be, uh, down south of Jerusalem. And uh, Jarmuth, which is uh, over closer to the coast, uh, was a major city. But Lachish, Lachish was going to later on be one of those cities going into Jerusalem, and you had to conquer it before you conquered Jerusalem. And we see many times uh, with Sennacherib and others that Lachish was one of those key fort cities uh, that would later on become part of Israel. And then Eglon, Eglon was one of the five cities of the Philistines. And so you have that whole southern region. And they did something, um, notice it says, in the, they said, come up and help, the, the Jerusalem said, come up and help me um, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has been, made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Now the Gibeonites, in spite of the way they did it, they were smart enough to say, hey, listen, your God's too big for us. And uh, we don't want any part of it. And so, but these people, as the devil, uh, will uh, fight against the, against the Lord to the last breath. And therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, and it goes back through these, this list again, gathered together and went up, and they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So the, here they were coming up. And uh, they were uh, surrounding the city. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua. So notice they saw this coming. And so 25 miles away, Joshua's at Gilgal, off to the east uh, uh, before you get to the Jordan, saying, uh, do not forsake your servants. Now you made a covenant with us. And again, we see that they made a covenant with the Lord. And whenever you make a vow to the Lord, he expects you to keep it. And whenever God makes a vow, he will keep it. And that's why we say when God made a covenant with, with Abraham and he told him what the, uh, that all the, city, all, the, uh, all the world would be blessed through, uh, through Abraham and that uh, he would be the father of many nations. And also then those Davidic covenants and so forth talking about uh, they would possess the land and rule with the Messiah, all those God made that, and so that's why we say that God cannot uh, alter his promise to Israel. And so those people today who say, well, Israel's no more, and they fail so much that God has now replaced Israel with the church, that is not true. In fact, uh, you will see that all through Scripture, Israel is the centerpiece of God's prophecy. What do we even call the, what do we call the seven-year tribulation? The time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is Israel, and it centers around. Where's Armageddon? Israel. So we see that, uh, that God has promised. And where's the king of, uh, or where's the uh, capital of the world going to be one day? Jerusalem. And God has promised that. And if he promised it, if he vowed it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and uh, even coming through with uh, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and others, if God said it, it's got to happen. So don't tell me this stuff that we now as, Christ, as a church have replaced Israel. We have not. Because one day God's going to take us out of here 
And then he's going to deal with Israel directly again. But he's promised that too, hasn't he? He said he's going to come in like manner. And what, how did he go up? He went up in the clouds. So every time you see, see clouds in the sky, say, okay, even so come Lord Jesus. And he's got to come to, to us probably in, Jan- in January because this one's the cloudiest around here, right? No, no, I don't know. But, uh, you know, he'll make the clouds. Whatever he does, we're going to go up to be with him in, with the Lord. But we notice he says um, in verse uh, 7, So Joshua ascended to Gilgal. Notice he goes up. And whenever you start going toward uh, Jerusalem, you're going up. So he ascended up to Gilgal, even though he's going east and, uh, well, actually going uh, east-southeast at the time. He ascended to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man shall stand before you. And Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night. So notice uh, he had a forced march at night. That's a good old military way of, uh, of, of surprise attack. But they marched the 25 miles to Gilgal. And so the Lord routed before Israel and killed them a great slaughter at Gibeon. Now this was uh, divine. This was great for Israel. Because now, instead of having to take each one of these fortified cities one by one and having to spend years trying to besiege some of them, especially any of them that had big walls, or if God was going to have to do this and he's got to have another Jericho or whatever, all these armies came out and fought uh, Israel, and so there wasn't anybody left. And so now the whole southern half of, the, of Canaan is open because the military armies have been de- defeated. And so there would just be a mopping up after this great battle. And so in the end, even though it looked like the, the forces of Satan had marshaled against the children of Israel, God just made short work of them so that they didn't have to spend years of taking each one of those cities one by one. And so we see that he killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them all down the road or along the road that goes to Beth Haran, of course, south, and struck them as far as Ezekiah and Makeda, uh, so I'm sorry, which would have been down uh, south of Jerusalem. And it happened that they fled before Israel and were on the descent uh, to Beth Haran. So they're going downhill now. Um, south, uh, past Jerusalem. Um, And the Lord cast down great hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. Now, where else do we see God casting down great hailstones? Ninety pounders, as far as I understand. They weighed a talent apiece. Where was that? In Revelation chapter 16, verse 21. And again, it's two for, uh, he did it both places for two reasons. Because of blasphemy. The, the penalty for blasphemy in Israel was stoning. And Melchizedek, or excuse me, not, uh, Adonai Zedek, uh, his, he was, by his very name, he was blasphemous. Blasphemous. And yet we see that uh, these people had defied God. They had still had a lot of the the names of God and so forth, or they perverted them. And their iniquity, their twisted thinking was totally full. And so God stoned them 
Just like he stoned the people who blasphemed him against, uh, he will stone the, those who blaspheme him in the tribulation. So it's kind of interesting how that God's judgment is so, in, uh, so sure when he brings judgment upon those whose iniquity is full. And of course, that's what we know happens in the, uh, in the book of Revelation. And so another thing we'll see in just a moment kind of draws parallels to that. And so the men died from, the more men died from the hailstones than from the children of Israel who killed with the sword. So God, God has ways of taking care of our enemies better than we do, doesn't he? Can we trust God? Now, I'm not, a, no, I'm not telling you, the Lord, you know, let the hailstone drop on that person. No, I'm not saying that. But uh, God has ways. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. But uh, notice that they were doing what God told them to do. They had fought all night against uh, superior numbers, probably. And yet uh, we see that God took care of the rest. Like we say, you go ahead and do what God tells you to do, and God will take care of the rest. And we see that he did this supernaturally. So that was the first miracle there. And then Joshua spoke to, um, uh, to the Lord in that day. And this is one of the great prayers of the Bible that uh, he says, And when the Lord delivered uh, up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said to Israel, Stand still, uh, um, excuse me, stand, stand still over Gibeon and moon in uh, the alley of Ajalon, uh, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. So we see that, uh, that Joshua prayed and that uh, God stopped the universe for a day for him to take care of the rest of the situation. So not only stones from heaven, but then he changed heaven's courses. Now, uh, notice it says, is it not written in the book of Jasher, which we don't have? Uh, the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. Now, was that a 12-hour period where it didn't go down or whatever, you know, however long day, the day was? And then, or was it a 24-hour period? I'm more lean more toward the 12 hours of sunlight for the Lord to take care of it. But uh, notice it says, hasten not to go down. Uh, it stood still. Did it stand still or did it slowly go down? That's another question that we have. But um, whichever way, God changed the universe. Now, what would happen today if God stopped or slowed down drastically for a whole day the, um, the course of this earth? I mean, we would have major tsunamis. We would have all kinds of problems by the earth standing still. But then you think about all the things God had to do with the universe and with the moon. Notice the moon didn't. So the moon wasn't spinning around. And then you think about the sun and you think about the other planets in, in space. All the things that God had to do in order for that sun to stand still or slow down for 12 hours or give an extra 12 to 14 hours of daylight for this to happen. This would be a major calamity. This would be a major event. You say, well, uh, you know, God can't do that. Well, then again, anybody who denies what God says he does in the Bible says that God can't do anything he says in the Bible. Uh, God said he stretched, we've looked at that verse where he stretched out the universe and uh, manipulated it with his fingers. That's God. That's my God. 
And so if God can do that, cannot, can God alter his universe? Is he big enough to do that? If he's not big enough to, to uh, manipulate his universe the way he wants to, then he's not, he's really probably wasn't very big, big enough to even create it, was he? So notice he goes back to creation. And so God knows, how, can, God, can God heal a person's sickness? Can he reverse a person's uh, health? Yes, he can. And so God can do anything he wants to do when he wants to do it. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that my God cannot do. Well, that's true. Now, so we see that uh, God, we don't have to argue with those people. Because they're not going to, the people who, you prove it. Well, prove that it didn't happen. Prove to me anything, anything about evolution. You can't. I mean, uh, show me how the eye was formed. You can't show me. You can just tell me that what a lot of different people think happened. But you can't tell me. And so your faith is in evolution. My faith is in an almighty God. And so take your choice. Uh, God couldn't uh, hold back the waters of the Red Sea. It had to be the Reed Sea. And there was only a few feet of water in the Reed Sea, which is that little marsh that goes across uh, uh, the north part of the Nile. And uh, so God can do, well, my, then God had to create a miracle in killing uh, the strongest army in the world in two or three feet of water. You know, so you just, everything that God did, it was, it was like God said he did it. Or he didn't do it at all. One of the two. Are we reading a fable here? Or are we reading the Word of God? I don't have any problem believing that's the Word of God. I don't have any problem believing that God can do what he says he wants to do. And I don't have to explain it. Because God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, well actually, um, we should leave out a little word there. If God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Amen? I mean, either it's true or not. And so this is another one of those miracles. But it's another thing to see that Joshua prayed for it. And so, you know, can, can our prayers change the course of history? When God wants them to, he can. And like the little quote I put in there by uh, a man named Chuck Missler in our bulletin, and that is uh, prayer is uh, just, let's see, how did I put that? See, I, I, he said prayer is God's way of enlisting us in the, work, in the work that he's doing. So whatever God is doing, what I want to do is, Lord, thy will be done. Get me on board. I want to, I want to see what you can do. And that's why I'm praying tonight. Lord, there's, there's one thing we cannot do as a church. I cannot save a soul. But you can. Amen? Can God save souls? But Lord, if you can save souls, I want to be along there with you. I want to be that witness for you, if you will let me. I mean, what a privilege to, to see a person, uh, they're, they're talking about eternity, the whole, I mean, their whole destiny for eternity is changed simply by the message that we preach. Don't we want to see that? Don't we want to see that with our friends, with our relatives? And so there's nothing my God cannot do. But uh, Lord, help me, get, get me on board. Thy will be done. I want it like you can. I can't change the earth, but you can. Now, you set me out here. I, my men have marched all night. Uh, we, we're limited in what we can do. We're dragging. After all the big battles we had, we chased people for miles down the road. And um, we can't do it all. 
So what does the Lord do? Send hailstones. And then uh, from that, he said, okay, Lord, that's great. Well, what else can we do? Can you do? And he said, okay, just I'll keep, I'll, I'll, I'll keep the flashlight of heaven going for you. And you just go ahead and keep doing what I tell you to do. And I'll alter heaven and earth for you to do what I tell you to do. And so what a blessing it is to see that God did this. By the way, this, this is the last miracle that we see in the book of Joshua. Everything else now is for them to do what God's already told them to do. And so we see that, um, that, uh, that, that there was, uh, well, let's go back to verse 15. Then Joshua returned and all Israel to the camp Gilgal. Um, and, uh, but these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave of Makeda, which is on uh, south of Jerusalem a little bit. And it was told Joshua, saying, These five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And so Joshua rolled large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men there to guard them. Now, where else do we see that in Scripture, where men flee to the caves for safety after a hillstone? Again, in the book of Revelation. Notice how that God, how that this almost replicates or is a picture of what God's going to do when he judges the world um, in the book of Revelation. And so we see that they flee, but it's, uh, all they do is trap themselves by going into a, a cave. And they, and they, uh, they get to guard them. He said, do not stay yourselves, but pursue your enemies. So keep on going. So some of the men went back to Gilgal, but the Lord sent the mopping up divisions on down to keep going. Um, and, to, uh, and he says, and attack their rear guard. So they're running, so don't let them up or don't let them stop. Uh, do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So keep on going. And that's one of the major things uh, in battle is once you get the enemy on their own run, don't stop. Keep on going. If you stop, you give them time to regroup. And so... And this is one thing that uh, I've mentioned many times about how that Washington escaped um, uh, early in the war uh, when it, whenever he was attacked by William Howe. And uh, he, got, he crossed the Hudson uh, from Long Island. And he did that because Howe said, oh, we'll get him tomorrow. And his men were screaming, said, we've got to take him tonight, t this afternoon. Ah, we'll do it tomorrow. And Washington escaped to fight another day. And that, you know, the whole American history was turned on a guy who said, oh, we'll get him the next day. And so we see that he says, keep on chasing them. Don't let them regroup. And then it, uh, then it happened when Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of the slaying of them with great slaughter till they had finished that those who escaped entered their fortified cities. So there might be a few trickle of the people and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. And so now there's going to be a mopping up. They're, they're going to take those cities. And notice they'd run back to the cities, but they don't have near the manpower to man those cities anymore. And those cities are going to be very easily taken. Uh, no one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. <laughs> they couldn't say anything else. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought out the five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, and it goes through the list again. And so it was in verse 20, 
24, so it was when they brought out the kings of, to Joshua that Joshua called all the men. Now notice, again, leadership. Joshua doesn't take all the credit. He says, okay, men, come and you do this. I'm not going uh, to do it. You do it. You're the leaders. And so he said, he called all the men and said to the captains of the men of the war who went with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of the kings. Now that was an ancient way of saying, okay, you're dead, brother. And uh, it was a humiliation of putting your, your foot on the neck of the person, uh, especially a king, and humiliating him in, in private or in public. Um, and he says, you do this. Not, notice Joshua didn't say, I'm the great conqueror. He gave credit to his men. And boy, no wonder they loved him. No wonder they didn't rebel against him. I mean, he had people willing to die for him because of what he did. There are certain generals that, uh, uh, like Lee and others, uh, he, whether you like what side he was on or not, he was a fantastic general because he wouldn't order many of his older men or his uh, hires, but he would stop and ask their advice. You're asking me, you're supposed to be the military genius. And he would call and he would uh, question them and ask them what they thought, and then he would go through and, and by questioning them, let them know, okay, what would you do here? What, and they, he would help them to make their plans by showing them what was wrong with their plan rather than saying, this is what you're going to do, brother. And so, uh, you know, good leaders. I, I had, a, uh, I had a, um, an administrator when I was teaching school, and he just came in and sat in my, office, my uh, room one time, and I was second year teaching, and I really still had a whole lot. You don't learn. It takes about five years to really be a good teacher. But uh, he uh, came into my room and just sat there. And later on, he got with me kind of casually. And he said, uh, oh, I really enjoyed your class today. I'm going, yeah, really. But he said, uh, uh, and he talked to me, complimented. But he said, there's a couple of things, if you'd like to hear, I thought I, you know, I might help you. I'm going, well, like to hear? You know, it was... Uh, and, he, and boy, that, that guy was so good, and he made me want to teach for him because it wasn't, now, this is what you did wrong, Buster, and this is what you need to write your, and all that. But uh, his name was Alton Allen. He was just a tremendous uh, administrator. He knew how to deal with people and deal with teachers, and no wonder he had teachers there that had been there 20 and 30 years because people just, they, he knew how to deal with people. Don't you like dealing with people over you that make you feel like you're part of the plan? And this is what uh, Joshua did. And this is why we say Joshua is a great book on leadership. He shows how to deal with those people under He doesn't take the credit. He allows his men to be with him. And now notice how he encourages them as he does it. Notice he goes, he says, uh, he took, and so the captains of the men of war went with him and they come near and put your feet on the kings. And they drew near and put their feet on the necks. Then Joshua said, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Now, where do we hear that? All the way to chapter 1. He's repeating what God's told him, and he's reiterating it. He, repetition, line upon line, precept upon precept. He is saying, you know, don't be not dismayed or dis, discouraged, or, or afraid or dismayed, uh, but be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to your enemies against whom you fight. And so he's encouraging men. Now, he's saying, God will do this for us. Hasn't he done it? And it's really good to be able to do that, not when you look at those big walls of Jerusalem, but, but it's a great teaching whenever, you, whenever your men have their 
uh, feet on the neck of a king and he said, God will take care of you. It's a whole lot easier to believe that than when you got a your foot on the neck of a king than when you're looking up those great walls, right? But you're willing to look up at those great walls if you have been there and done that. If God did it before, he can do it again. And this is what God's teaching him, teaching his, uh, his men through Joshua. And afterward, uh, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on a tree, on five trees, and they were, uh, notice he didn't, do, he didn't make his men do the dirty work. He took care of them themselves. But uh, he hanged them on the five trees, and they were hanging until evening. So it was the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded that they take down. Why? Because God says, don't, don't leave people hanging overnight on a tree. So cursed be any man hanging on a tree. And these men were cursed. But God had said earlier, and notice even to the smallest detail, God, we see that Joshua didn't let the, the book of the law part out of his mouth. He realized what God had said, and he commanded that they would be taken. Then notice he throws them in a cave, and we see another pile of rocks. This is the fifth pile of rocks that we see that uh, is used as a memorial. So there'd be places all over. It's like going down south and looking at those battlefields. You can... Go and say, this is where such and such happened. This is where uh, Gettysburg was. This is where whatever. Well, this is where, you know, the Battle of the Five Kings, the Battle of, uh, of, of uh, these cities, the five, uh, the five Kings of, of Jerusalem and, of, um, and what God did. After the Battle of Gibeon, I guess, is what we're looking at. And this is the end result of what God can do. So memorial even is set up for them. And uh, he made large stones against the cave's mouths, which remain, notice, to this very day. So whoever's writing this, say, hey, I could take you around to the battlefields. I could show you how that Joshua uh, fought the battle of Jericho, but also right on through the great victories that he had. And so, again, we see that, uh, notice in verse 24, or excuse me, 28, it says, and on that day Joshua took Makeda and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. It wasn't very hard to take even that city. He wasn't one of the original five kings. But he utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it. And he let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. And so, and so we see now the rest of the chapter. He deals with the mopping up operations. And uh, he takes care, he split the city in half, or the uh, Canaan in half, and he took care of the southern regions first, and then he went to the north. It's kind of interesting, that's the exact same type of detail that the Israeli army did in Gaza. They went through, right through the middle, and then I think they went south first, and then they went north. Then they, they came back up to the north, or it might have been the other way around. But uh, they split the, split the area, and then they... They took the, the cities and took the areas one by one. And so we see that God has ways of doing things. And if we are willing to follow him, then he's more than willing to fight the battle for us. He goes before us. And he will do things that we cannot do. Because he's, we are well now... now Omnipotent and omniscient, we're we're well nigh um, indestructible until God's through with us.
Can we really believe that? Can we believe that God can take care of the impossible, the things that we can't do? That's the time to pray. And Lord, it's too big for us. I can't mop up. We can't take this army on. You told us to wipe them out and that no man will stand before me. Okay, Joshua, I realize your limits and I know what I can do. I'll take over. And boy, does the Lord has ways of taking over. So we do what God, we tell what God tells us to do and he'll change heaven and earth to the rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promises you give us that there's nothing that you cannot do. And you tell us, Lord, but thanks be to God, which giveth us, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're for us, who can be against us? So, Lord, we want those battles. We want those, those areas where we have seen you personally work in our lives. And remember those little memorials when you've done things and that we can go back and remember this is the day that you delivered me. This is the day you called me. This is the day that you spoke to me. This is the day that you did things that I, were impossible for me to do. Oh, Lord, give us those victories. Give us those times in our lives where we look back on them and see that you have been faithful and you have worked out those things to your glory and to our benefit. Bless your people, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.